We're up to chapter four, Mishnah six. Rabbi Yishmael Beno Omer. Rabbi Yishmael, the son of the author of the previous Mishnah, Rabbi Yochum Membroka, his son was also a great Torah scholar, and he said the following teaching. If someone studies Torah with the intention of studying to the degree that they're going to teach. The mighty enables for them to study so that they know and to study so that they're able to teach. If someone wants to study with the intention of teaching, the Almighty fulfills their wishes. The Halomidamanas Lasos, if someone studies not with the intention of teaching alone, but teaching and doing and observing and obeying and adhering, then he is going to be availed from heaven to study and to teach and to observe and to guard and to obey. Okay, so he tells us that when someone studies, their intention that they have while they study matters. If someone's intention is to study for the sake of teaching, well, then they're able to unlock study for their own and teaching for others. Whereas when someone studies with the intention of doing, that's even greater. They're able to study for themselves, teach others, to guard and to do. I think the simple baseline explanation, and one that's referenced by many of the commentators, is that we, with our intentions, we get to choose the kind of life that we want to live. Or the Almighty facilitates us to get what we want. This is a very powerful idea. And the Talmud tells it as follows. The Talmud in the book of Marcus, page 10b, says that there's a principle that's such a foundational, fundamental principle of Jewish philosophy that you'll find references to it in all three parts of the Tanakh. In the Torah, the Father of Moses, in the prophets and in the writings. It's such a foundational principle. It appears everywhere in Jewish scripture. And what is this very important principle? In the path that a person wants to follow, that is the path that they will be led. We get to choose which kind of life we want to live. I want this path or that path or that path or that path. I choose and the Almighty will hold my hand and take me down the path that I choose. And again, we see this this kind of partnership. The person wants to study, and then, okay, how do you want to study? What's the intention? What's the desire? What's the mode? So it depends. One person chooses this mode, and he gets that mode. The second person chooses the other mode, and they get the other mode. They choose what is the degree of achievement that they want to get with their studying. A similar related teaching in the Talmud in the book of Yoma, page 39b, and it's found elsewhere in the Talmud. If someone wants to become pure, then they will be aided from heaven. If someone wants to become impure, then they will be availed to do so from heaven. Meaning that our free will choices are more than just specific, isolated questions of action. Maybe even more fundamentally, it's about what kind of life you want to live. If we're striving to improve, if we want to be ascended, if we want to have an upward trajectory, the might will help us. If we want to have a downward spiritual trajectory, 
the money will help us do that as well, or money will facilitate it. It won't help us. The money will enable that. We'll have the opportunities to achieve what our heart desires. Similarly, over here, the same idea that if someone wants to choose study in, in this mode, they get that mode, and that's aided to them from heaven, and the second kind of study, maybe there's others, but the second kind of study someone wants to do, well, then they're, they're able to unlock many more. What's not clear from the Mishnah is what exactly is meant by someone studying with intention of teaching and what is meant by someone who studies with intention of doing. And here's why. Because simply put, doing means to obey the laws. So what's maybe implied in the Mishnah is that the first person wants to study with intention of teaching, you may think that that's coming to the exclusion of doing. Meaning, this is the teacher who says, do as I preach, not as I do. I'm teaching you the laws. I myself, I'm not going to do it, but I want you to do it. That's what you, that's how you may read the Mishnah. Big mistake. All the commentaries point out that no. When someone studies with the intention of not actually doing what they're intending or what they're studying, that's someone who's trying to divorce God from Torah. That's someone who's trying to take the applicability of Torah and separate out the wisdom, the insight, the knowledge of Torah. And that's, of course, sacrilegious. That's one of the worst things that we could do is to take God of the Torah, take the divinity of Torah, take what makes the Torah absolutely powerful and beautiful and wonderful and, and amazing and, and divine and eternal and timeless. When someone says, okay, let, let's study this as any other discipline, but not in a way that is going to impact me, not in a way that's going to obligate me, not in a way that's going to filter into my life, that's a sin, so that's certainly not what's being mentioned over here. And therefore, even someone who is studying with the intention of teaching, of course, they personally are planning on doing whatever it is that they're studying. Well, if so, then what is the benefit of someone who studies with the intention of doing? If the first person who studies with the intention of teaching, if they also plan on doing it, then what benefit is there in the second person who wants to do if the first person wants to do already, what is added by the second person who wants to, who wants to do on top? What does that mean to the, the intention of doing? So one of the commentaries points out something very deep, a very deep insight. The, the net message of this teaching is that whatever someone wants to do, the Almighty will facilitate that. They want to study, the Almighty will facilitate that. They want to study to teach. The money will enable that as well. They want to study with you to teach and to do whatever that means. We'll talk about that in a second. The money will enable that too. Well, what if the person has other inhibitors that are blockading their ability to study properly? Included in this Mishnah is a promise, say some of the commentaries, that the money is going to clear away all the obstacles, all the impediments, that are stopping us from achieving our goal. doesn't mean that the mighty will only enable us to understand it. No, he'll make our life conducive towards studying Torah. And they give a great story. The story is told about the book of Samuel. Right at the beginning, you read about Eli, the Kohen, the high priest, and his two sons. And his two sons... They did a sin. It's not so clear what they did. You read the verse, it seems like they did something very heinous. You read the Talmud, it seems like it was something much less egregious and severe. But regardless, 
there is a curse that was levied upon the, fa- the family, the house of Eli, that all their young men will die young. They won't live long lives. And the Talmud tells a story about two of the sages in the times of the, of the Talmud era. So we're talking about more than a thousand years after Eli that they were from this family. And how they managed to find a loophole around this promise that they're going to die young. The Almighty says, you're going to die young. It's a curse. But here we have a promise. If someone wants to study, you'll be able to do that. Well, what if there is a curse saying you're going to die young? doesn't matter. This is going to supersede the curse because the Almighty says, okay, the person wants to study, we're going to enable that. Well, what if they have this lingering, looming promise that they're going to die? doesn't matter. It's a way to avoid that verdict. So it tells a story about two of the sages. And these sages, by the way, appear in every page of the Talmud. Rabba. Rabba is one of the most common names, the top five common names in the Talmud. And Abaya, Abaya is number two. The second most mentioned sage in the Talmud is Abaya. Both of them descended from the house of Eli. And therefore, both of them were destined to die young. But Rabba, he was someone who was engaging in Torah study. And therefore, he lived double his life expectancy. He lived till 40. Even though it's from the house of Eli, he lived till 40. Whereas Abaya, who was engaged not only in Torah study, but also in acts of kindness, he managed to live till 60. He was able to forestall his verdict for 20 more years. Some of the commentaries tell us, what does it mean when someone studies with the intention of teaching? It means they want to study the Torah very deeply to the degree they're able to teach it to someone else. What does it mean when someone studies Torah with the intention of doing? It means they want to broaden the impact the Torah is going to have on them. Not only are they going to study with the intention of teaching, but they also want to think of ways of how to actualize that, how to become a beacon, an exemplar, a paragon of kindness. And therefore, when Rabbah was studying Torah with the intention of becoming great in Torah, the Almighty availed of that. The Almighty forestalled his death sentence, so to speak, and he was able to live way longer than he was initially scheduled. The Almighty facilitated that. But the other sage who expanded the amount of uh, of impact Torah is going to have on him, to not only become an exemplar of Torah study, but also become a paragon of kindness, well, he unlocked a little bit more and he was able to achieve greatness in both fields, both in Torah and in kindness, and therefore they might have facilitated that by making him live up to the age of 60. If someone wants to study Torah and they want to do it seriously, they want to study Torah or to do kindness, that they have a spiritual mission, a spiritual goal, a spiritual destination. And there's other problems, either health problems, or maybe there's financial problems, or maybe there's cognitive problems. They want to study, but they don't have the mind. You know what? The Almighty can make your mind sharper. The Almighty could swap out the RAM and put in a new, put in a new set, right? The Almighty could facilitate that, whatever it is. We have a promise here. It's an amazing thing. We have a promise in this Mishnah that if someone wants to study Torah, and there's problems, the Almighty will facilitate that because the Almighty is all-powerful. And he's pledging someone study Torah to teach Torah, someone study Torah to facilitate Torah, whatever it is, to, to, to do Torah, that will be availed for them. The Talmud says that 
every person is allotted a certain amount of years to live. And every time they do a sin, some of time, some of the time that they were previously allotted is shaved off. Every time they study Torah, they can increase some years of their life. And this is the Talmud talking, not me talking. It's, it's, no, it's no shock when you see the great Torah scholars of the generation. They're all living to 110. Like, it's, how is that even possible? How is it possible? You look at all the, all the Torah sages, the amount of Torah sages that we've had over the last several decades that have lived beyond 100 years old and still been at the forefront and sharp. I met Rabbi Steinman. Who was the was considered one of the leaders of 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 Torah Jewry? Passed away, I think, a couple of years ago, 2017 or something like that. I met him. He was over 100 years old. I think it was over 100 years at the time. He might have been 98 or something like that. He was very old. I went to him. I he couldn't believe how sharp he was and how he was involved in so many things. Who who has superpowers at the age of 97, 98? It doesn't exist. If you're someone who's saying, I'm going to dedicate my, my, my life to doing what's right, do what the Almighty wants of you, you're going to have a longer life. This is Mishnah. You're going to have a longer life. The Almighty will facilitate that. You want to study, you want to teach, you want to help, you want to build, and you're not going to sin, you're not going to shave off years of your life. This is the answer. The Almighty will enable that. Well, what if I'm supposed to die young? Or I'm supposed to die at 100? Maybe you could push the boundary to 110. Why not? It's, of course, it applies for the sons of Ailey, because then we know, then we know for sure that they're supposed to die young. And we see people that were able to beat the curse. And each one of them, depending upon how much they were striving to achieve, that's how long they're able to live. I would imagine if someone's like, you know, kind of mailing it in, but still studying, maybe they could push 20 to 30. Maybe. The Talmud says that there's, that there's several mitzvos that talk about, in, in scripture, that talk about lengthening your life. One of them, of course, is honoring your parents. You honor your parents, you live, have a long life. One of them is you send away the mother bird before you take the baby birds, and that too will lengthen your life. So that's the Talmud. One of them is the most difficult mitzvah to fulfill, and one of them is the easiest mitzvah to feel, to fulfill. And both of them tell you that you do, that you garner a long life as a result of that. What is that telling you? It's telling you that every single mitzvah is giving you a long life. It tells you the easiest one to fulfill, the hardest one to fulfill, and you know that everything between, though everything that spans those two polar opposites also has this promise that it will give you a long life. Why? Because the Almighty says someone wants to do mitzvahs, someone's investing in doing mitzvahs, is going to be able to do what they want to do. This is the first of several explanations that we're going to share on this Mishnah. And again, what it's telling us is that when someone wants to study, to teach, it means they want to study Torah, and that's going to facilitate that. And maybe that takes 40 years to do. So you'll have 40 years of life guaranteed. And then you have, even if you're supposed to die young, and then you have someone who wants to study with intention of doing, and that's much a, a much a broader goal. And that maybe takes 60 years at a minimum to do. And that's going to guarantee you 60 years of life. But the, the bottom line is, is that when someone is undertaking the responsibility of teaching, of studying, of of doing, then the Almighty is going to clear away anything that may be an impediment towards achieving that goal. Rabbi Yona has a different way of framing this Mishnah. He explains that there's two kinds of learning. There's two kinds of study. There's the study which is more surface. When you're studying, because you want to study but you're not really investing every fiber of your capabilities to try to understand what's, what's the will of God. What's the, what is the message of, of Torah? You want to study, 
because you want to just absorb it, you know, at your own pace with your own uh, with your own investment at your, at your at your own time. You want to do it in a more leisurely fashion, and you know what? That's great. The money will enable that. But if someone studies with Hitchin of doing, and the way he translates that, that is, is that if someone really, really, really wants to understand the truth and the essence of Torah, and they are willing to toil, this is his quote, for years and days to be able to understand even a small thing. Because after all, they want to send the money's Torah. And even if it's small, it's only, it's only small, you know, in our eyes, if it's from the Almighty, it's everything is everything. Everything is gargantuan. They're willing to, because they're so committed to understanding the truth that they're willing to toil and invest years and days to understand something even small. Behold, this person is trying to study with the intention of doing. He only desires to be as truthful as doing as best as you could to the best of your abilities. Investing everything you can, that is the much higher level, and then you get everything. Because if someone wants to to do the way it's defined over here, then they're able to study, to be able to teach, to be able to observe, to guard, and to do, and that really encompasses everything. And he's he's differentiating between two kinds of learning. We can learn and try to say, okay, this is nice. Or we could say, okay, I have the Almighty's Torah, I have the guideline, the guidebook, the entire blueprint for life for everything. It's all there. And I want to do as best as I could to immerse myself into it. And we have a promise is that if that's your intention, you will achieve your aim. You will achieve your target and you will unlock everything because you're putting in the effort. I want to mention maybe another angle of this teaching. I think the, you know, the first words of this Mishnah really resonate. If someone studies attention of teaching, You'll be able to do it. If you desire to teach and you put in the, you put in the effort, you're guaranteed to be successful. Now, I think in general, we have to realize that we have a mandate to not harbor the Torah for ourselves. Everything we study, we got to teach. In fact, there was a famous line that Reb Noach Weinberg used to always say, if you only learned Aleph, which is the first letter of the, of the Hebrew alphabet, that's all you learned. You got to teach it. There's no minimum requirement of, oh, now you can become a teacher. But I think here we, in this Mishnah, we, we discover that when someone has a desire to teach, they will be able to do it. They will unlock new portals. And I want to say, as someone that's been teaching for a long time, that this is true. And it's in true in multiple, in multiples of ways. I just, last week, I uploaded my 800th podcast. Which is a nice achievement, right? Where did that come from? Well, I studied and I studied to teach. But I'm telling you, I, I did not have the knowledge. I didn't have the abilities. I didn't have the tools to do it. I didn't. But I said, I'm going to do it. And I, and I did it. And where did it come from? It's this Mishnah. Someone desires to teach and they study with the intention of teaching. That will become possible. What was previously impossible became possible. How? Because the Almighty facilitated it. I want to add, a lot of people are scared of teaching. And one of the primary fears is, well, what if I get asked the question and I don't know the answer? So I'll tell you my own personal experience in this. I cannot tell you how many times the following thing happened. I did ask an esoteric question. 
That's a good question. That would have stumped me a week prior, but I happened to the previous week have seen the answer. Or I've seen something that could lead me to the answer. It's just an amazing thing. Like, it's, it's, it's almost the Almighty is like, is pre-feeding me with the information that you would need to answer the question that you're, that you're going to be asked by someone trying to stump you. I remember one question that someone asked me. It was such a great question. And I, I, I happened to have had an answer because I recently thought about it and it was just, it was just so fortuitous and it's such a, it's such a arcane, esoteric subject. The question was, in our prayers, we say God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Now the Talmud says that King David says, well, why do we say God of David? That's a good question that he says. And the man says, well, they were tested. You weren't tested. It's like, oh, test me. Oh, test you. Okay. Here comes Bathsheba and had that work out. That's what the Talmud says. But his question was, the person asked me this question, who, by the way, has since passed. He asked me, well, why don't we say the God of Moses? It's a good question. It would have stumped me a week beforehand, but I had the answer. I don't remember why, but I remember I, 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 I had been in the neural pathways of engaging in something related to this that I had, I think I had several answers to this question. Do you want to hear him? Yes. <laughs> I think what I said was that, first of all, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there are forefathers. And therefore, all of us are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whereas Moses, it's already, it's already one family. That's, that's, I think, probably the most correct answer. The problem is that King David wanted, and King David is already later on, and therefore, that wouldn't be a legitimate answer. So I told him, I said, I think the answer is that when we say God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what we're in effect saying is that we want to ride their coattails. Abraham had a very close connection with God. Same thing with Isaac. Same thing with Jacob. These are people that invested a lifetime of work to create a close relationship with God. And they're, of course, our forefathers. And therefore, we, by invoking them, we're saying we want to latch onto their relationship that they had with the Almighty. Whereas what Moses did, Moses was greater than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He transcended to a level of an angel. He becomes this otherworldly being almost. And in fact, like he has to walk around here with a mask. He's living so much in heavens that he's a foreigner here. He's more comfortable around the angels than around humans. The level of Moses, it's so beyond us, we can't even hope to latch onto that. And therefore, we have to set our expectations low. It's not because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were greater than Moses, and therefore we can only apply the name of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was true by David. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were greater than David. David wanted to achieve that status, and he couldn't. Moses is an entirely different level because Moses is greater than Isaac, and Jacob, whereas Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob only tasted Olamba, like the Talmud says in the book of Bavabasra, page 17a. Moses lived and that higher exalted stature, and that's something we can't even hope to even have a connection with. It's so beyond us, and therefore we don't invoke that in our prayers. Where did that come from? I, I think this is the answer. I think that if someone accepts upon themselves responsibility to teach, it'll become possible for them to do it if they so desire. In our community, thank God I'd say robust Torah community, and there's all kinds of Torah lectures and Torah activities happening on a weekly basis, one of the things that happens is every Thursday night, someone from the community gives a lecture on the Parsha. 
and there's some food, and it's a nice festive environment. It's great. So I was tasked with finding a volunteer each week. And, of course, there's a lot of people that are eager to do it and say, put me in for this week, for next week, for the week after. But there's probably an equal or greater amount of people that say, gosh, I'd love to teach, but I'm worried, I'm scared. What if I don't come up with anything? What if What if I I don't find something to say and I give them parsha? What if someone asks me a question I don't know? And you know what? These are legitimate questions. They're justifiably concerned because there is room for concern. But they have to read this Mishnah. The Mishnah says, if someone studies potential teaching, the Almighty will facilitate that. And if you study potential teaching, you will have the goods. Why? Because that's the promise. When you invest, the Almighty is going to endow you with the ability, with the wisdom, with the insight, with the discerning, with the understanding to be able to deliver upon that pledge. I have a story. I've said it before. I'll say it again because it really hammers home this point. My grandfather, blessed memory, he used to give a weekly lecture in his yeshiva. This was one of the highlights of the week. The head of the yeshiva would give a lecture. And it would be a lecture. And was we? I have access today to about 2,500 lectures that he gave and he wrote down. He didn't, he didn't type them, but he wrote them down by hand. They've been, they've subsequently been typed. Amazing lectures, amazing discourses and treatises and essays that he wrote on the widest gamut of, of Torah subjects over the course of his storied career. There was one week that he was trying to prepare a lecture and he couldn't do it. And every avenue that he was trying to delve into, he reached a dead end. And every subject he tried to ponder, he made no headway. And the clock is ticking and he knows that at 7 o'clock he's got to go to the yeshiva grounds and give a lecture. And he doesn't have any. This is going to be an embarrassment. What are you going to do? You walk in there and everyone's there waiting. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to say? It's, it's your job. You can't just recycle old content. What are you going to do? So the time is coming. Time's arriving. And with no other choice, he starts walking from his home, which was on the Yeshiva campus grounds, to the Yeshiva building. And as he's about to get closer to the building, something that never happened before, not before and not since, happened. His partner, who was the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the Yeshiva, together they were partners in heading the Yeshiva, approached him and says, I have a very unusual request. My father-in-law came to visit us, and he's very desirous of taking your slot and giving the lecture tonight. He's very desirous, but I know it's your pulpit. So I want to ask you permission, if you would mind, to give the speaking slot to my father-in-law. Would that be okay? That never happened before and never happened again. And and he used to say that this was a lesson to him. The lesson that the Almighty is teaching him is that when you accept the responsibility and you say, I'm going to do it and you need to do it and you're going to have an audience, you'll have something to say. And when you're not going to have an audience, you won't have something to say. And that was as illustrative to him as when he – because sometimes we think, you know, you're, you prepare a speech. Ooh, I am so – Brilliant. I am so intelligent. I am so capable. I am so glib. I have all the tools to give great lectures. Amazing. 
And of course, we tend to forget God when we have our own genius on display. And here we see that, and this is the story is a, is a stark reminder of the fact that no, it's not you who has brilliance. Maybe you were given a, a, a modicum of intellect by God, but ultimately it's all God's. And when you have success in Torah, it's because the Almighty is giving you the success. And then he's going to say, no, not today, and teach you this lesson. Okay, it's not your turn today. Someone else's turn. And therefore, therefore, it's not today, which is an amazing insight. But I think that the meta point of this Mishnah is uh, dual, that when someone understands Torah, they're understanding the knowledge of God. They're connecting to the higher spheres. And that is only allowed if permission is granted. You want to study Torah? Okay. The Imai says, maybe yes, maybe no. And if someone commits themselves to study and they want to study to teach, okay. The Imai is pledging to open up a door. If someone wants to study with the intention of doing whatever that may be, to understand it deeply or to, to, to expand the influence that Torah is going to have upon their lives, the Imai is going to facilitate that as well. May we all merit to study Torah, to teach Torah, to support Torah, to engage in Torah, to do Torah, to actualize Torah, and to have Torah influence us in our lives. My email address is rabbiwalbajima.com. I look forward to hearing from y'all. This was an absolute joy and a pleasure.